0: Welcome to the MBA Jam podcast with your host Avinash Bajaj. Hello folks, welcome to another episode of the MBA Jam. This is your host and founder Avinash. Today we're speaking to Davis Jones. Davis is the co-founder of Easel, a business education company which has more than 100,000 students worldwide. They published multiple best-selling video courses on topics such as growth hacking, entrepreneurship, management training, and about career management. Prior to becoming an entrepreneur, Davis was a headhunter for firms in Silicon Valley and the North Bay at Robert Half, Hoff, Robert Hoff, the international talent consulting firm. Prior to that, Davis was a team lead and content marketer for the CCA Group in the United States. Davis has done his MBA in uh, Global Finance from Ed Heck Business School in France, which is why we are speaking to him today, and a bachelor's degree in International Economics with a focus on international development from Sonoma State University in California, if I got that right. Davis, mm-hmm. welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Hi, everybody listening.
0: <laughs> great. So, Davis, that was just me reading your introduction. But, of course, it would be great if you can you know, explain how your journey has progressed over these years.
1: Well, I think for your audience, for, for you listening that is interested in taking an MBA program, or maybe you've already taken an MBA program, One thing that's a little bit unique about my story and my my journey, as you mentioned, is that I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and that's a little bit different from you know for especially from the context of what most MBA programs are designed for. Um, I mean, I know some MBA programs have entrepreneurship tracks, entrepreneurship specializations, but really, I think the thing that's been a real big uh, part of my my story has been trying to make these uh, concepts around ambition and leadership and uh, the role of of corporates, you know, corporate citizenship make make to become relevant for people who want to be uh, small business people, entrepreneurs, regional business leaders and things like that, Um, because I find that very often we are inundated with information about what ibm is doing or what apple is doing and from my perspective uh, it's not that relevant for me i don't really want to be um personally uh you know in organizations that are that are that large uh, so in general so it's just i think that's been a big a big part of my story is how to how to make those concepts work for for people who are, who are interested in, in in working in smaller teams
0: yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, so you've been running Easel for four years now. Uh, but you mentioned that you always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So were you actually having some side projects in entrepreneurship before that? Or were you running some kind of startup or businesses before that? Or is this your proper full time entrepreneur venture?
1: Oh, so I've been running entrepreneurship, uh, basically small businesses and things like that since I was like 14 years old. Wow. (laughs) So I've been, I've really been focusing on it for a really long time. Um, I did after, you know, I got here in my MBA, I did originally aim to stay in, you know, the corporate world or at least see what that was all about Mm. for a while. And that's why I joined Robert Half in, in the San Francisco area. Um, And, I basically, you know, decided that it, it was not for me, and so that's when I started a little side business, which was basically helping people with writing projects, and that sort of developed into Easel, uh, which became a full-time, you know, business after a little while. Although, you know, for you, for you listening, if you're interested in starting a business, something that you should know is that for my first year or so of, you know, operating Easel, I was really really poor, <laughs> and <laughs> you know most entrepreneurs
0: are in the beginning
1: (laughs) yeah so it wasn't it wasn't you know successful right off the bat i mean we did do pretty well within the first year and a half but there was definitely some some times when i had an mba and i was super poor (laughs) and it felt weird
0: right right that's really interesting so why do an mba at all were you trying to fill some gap in your knowledge that you think an MBA could help or did you have some other purpose? Like, What was your motivation to even do an MBA?
1: Well, uh, I'll, I'll give you two parts to that answer, uh, Avinash, and, and hopefully for your entrepreneurially-minded listeners, you know, this will help. But, you know, one part is what's the specific educational outcomes that came from an MBA that are related to entrepreneurship? The other thing is what is the sort of, more worldview or perspective thing that came out of it. So I'll answer the first bit first, which is what are the specific outcomes that the MBA gave me that I think are still really relevant? And most of those, I have to admit, are related to finance. Um, the ability to do business, uh, you know, financial modeling and to turn things related to businesses, whether it's like marketing or growth rates or things like that, to turn those into numbers. Uh, is, is, a, is a fundamental skill for future business leaders, and that I definitely learned most of that at the MBA. Um, with relation to worldview, the second part, I feel like there's something about spending a year or two of your life thinking about strategy and listening to the stories of, of organizations of people in the past and how they grew and developed and changed that is good you know, I know that it's soft. It's a soft concept, leadership and organizational psychology and stuff like that. But I feel like ultimately it is really valuable. And I, I, and even though some people question the value of an MBA, I still think that it was a very good investment.
0: Cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think that's, that's a very good answer, concise answer. So you got something definitely tangible as well mm-hmm. as something that was soft skills related in mm-hmm. terms of so it looks like you know you was this as clear in your mind before you went for the MBA or is this something that's clear looking back
1: <laughs> i so that's a great question the mba did give me a little bit of a sense of confusion Mm. and I'll and maybe you know for your listeners who have you know thought about doing something like entrepreneurship um, or even if you're just have never seen yourself as somebody who is going to go and work for an investment bank or something uh, the MBA definitely has a culture of of management consulting Goldman Sachs, investment banking, things like that. And it's it's attractive. There's definitely this energy, particularly in high-ranked MBA programs, you know, that everybody believes that they're going to be an investment banker or a partner at McKinsey within five years. And it's easy to get sucked into that mindset, and I definitely did. So uh, even though I have known that I wanted to be an entrepreneur forever, when I was at the MBA program, there was a while there where I felt like, maybe I would go into something like consulting after the MBA program
0: yeah absolutely no I can I can really relate to that when I did when I entered my MBA uh, in, in the first couple of months I was sucked into this whole consulting confusion as well because it seemed a no brainer <laughs> yeah uh, at that point of time it's the thing to do <laughs> exactly exactly especially with the deadlines like next two months you know you have to hit these consulting deadlines like but i haven't even given it a thought no it's submit it and then give it a thought <laughs> yeah so yeah it was crazy it's, it's really crazy cool that's that's really cool so why why edhec why go all the way to france or did you actually go to france for your mba or was it something that was done somewhere else
1: That's a great question. So yeah, I lived in uh, the south of France in Nice for about 18 months. And the reasons, there was, I guess, really three main reasons that uh, I went to EDHEC. One reason was that I felt like I was getting value for money. Um, You know, for example, in the Bay Area, one of the most popular MBA programs is Stanford, And that MBA program is currently going to cost you about a quarter of a million dollars to complete. So, you know, roughly two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, including rent and tuition and all that stuff. And I have no doubt that the Stanford MBA is a fantastic program and plugs you into an amazing network of people. But for me. Me being an entrepreneur, value for money was definitely on my mind because I did I do not want to get into a, a substantial amount of debt mm-hmm. because I knew that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I wasn't going to go work for a corporation and, and be able to pay these significant loans back. And and EDEC, I think after my scholarship, because I did well on the GMAT, mm-hmm. um, I think it cost me $36,000 total. Cool. Which, you know, that's one of the most affordable MBA programs yeah. in the world. So that was a big deal. Um, another big deal from EDIC was that it was the most international program available. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I, in, our, in our cohort of like 80 students, I think we had roughly 51 countries represented. And that's pretty incredible. Uh, in the short term after finishing my MBA, I don't think that the have, knowing somebody from Oman was that important. <laughs> but... As I become a more mature professional, having a, an insanely global network is really cool and helpful. Um, so I loved the global nature of EDHEC. That's what they view as their strategic advantage is that it's exceptionally internationally minded. The third and softer reason for going to EDHEC is that I wanted to live in the south of France so that I could get rid of that fantasy in my life and know, and just feel like I'd moved past it. Uh, The South of France is gorgeous, and I feel like a lot of people around the world have this idea of France and the Riviera as this magical place, and it's cool, but I feel like sometimes those ideas of having this place where every problem is going to go away actually hinder our human development, and so I wanted to go with my now wife to the South of France to just know what that was all about, so that as we became adults – we weren't uh, hamstrung by the idea that we always would dream of moving to the Riviera. So we did that, and now it's over, and it's cool. We know what it's all about.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of follow-up questions um, on those points. The first thing was, I was gonna to touch upon costs myself. Uh, it's a good thing you touched upon it yourself, because one thing was, MBAs are pretty expensive, and it's, it's really cool that you got a scholarship. Um, so that obviously helped you a lot in that cause so how, how yeah, did and i you, think yeah.
1: is like fifty six thousand dollars even without mm. scholarships or something like that um and you know so that's that's still like really affordable in my experience
0: i see i see so what are some of your tips for you know this scholarship game how how did you get the scholarship and you know is this something yeah what, what did you do to get the scholarship
1: Edhec is. I don't know if they've changed their policy now, but it's basically programmatic. Mm-hmm. If you get above, I think it was like a 700 on the GMAT, you get like a 25% scholarship, and if you get above like a 720 or something, you get like a 50% scholarship. And so I did well on the GMAT, and that qualified me for a scholarship.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Cool. That that's really good. And I I really see your point on the international program. You know, because I think I think European schools enjoy that privilege a little bit more than the u.s schools at least in my limited knowledge and experience i think you're right yeah because when i came here to london for the mba as well again there were a lot of um, countries represented which is which is pretty cool um yeah so that's really good that that was one factor that worked well for you
1: yeah i mean i think that especially for people who are working in businesses that are increasingly disrupted by, uh, technology and especially by technology on the customer side. Uh, you know, knowing, like I know people from Liberia, I know people from Germany, I know people from Oman, I know lots of people from India and not just, Mm -hmm. you know, India as one country, but Southern India versus Northern India. (laughs) And that's, you know, those personalities are really different. That's and so <laughs> being able to, to know some people from these countries enables you to at least have a you know conceptualization that the world is a huge patchwork of lots of different personalities. And I think that more and more uh, businesses who especially uh, sell digital products have to realize that the Internet is an absolutely massive place with participants from all over the world – and you know it really helps to know some people from those places and hear their stories
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and and the other part of course is yes i agree south of france nice is pretty amazing I'm, that's one of my best vacations so far <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. It is It
0: is pretty beautiful. I mean, and, and the fact that you were actually considering the whole aspect of value for money at even that point of time shows that you, you actually were quite purpose-driven even to get the MBA at that point of time. You knew what you're going to do after it as opposed to, you know, let's pick the best MBA out there and let's do whatever it takes, pay high fees and do whatever it takes to get in and then get a very high-paying corporate job and then figure it out, but since entrepreneurship was always on your mind, you you had a much better balance of benefits versus cost.
1: Yeah, one thing, one tip that I would have for your listeners who have not yet attended an MBA program is really to take an honest audit of their profile and uh, and at least uh, take into consideration whether or not you're going to get into like a top five MBA program or not, because when I originally entered the EdX MBA program, I thought, you know, I'm just going to let this MBA program process me. It's like, I'm going to go through their systems. I'm going to take their courses. I'm going to do what they say with my career and my resume and all that stuff. And what I found is that unless you're going to go to like Harvard or Stanford or some of the other leading business schools, I don't find that the that you're gonna have employers knocking at your door trying to hire you. Um, You know, at EDEC, there are some employers who come onto campus and things like that, but but to a large extent, it's an entrepreneurial endeavor. Mm -hmm. At the end of the program, you are gonna need to create opportunities for yourself. And so, in that dynamic, the cost is a big deal. Because if you're gonna be basically an entrepreneur on the other side of the program anyway, at least in terms of finding your next role, then you might as well go somewhere that you're getting value for money. You know, but if you're going to go to Stanford and you're just going to say, okay, I'm going to see who's on campus and I'm going to just eat that $250,000, then maybe it makes sense. Uh, but I, I think that there's a really big difference between the top five or ten programs and the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, I, I'm from India, and of course, a lot of people from India try and contact me about the MBA, and they, they're really shocked and surprised when I tell them, "Look, there is no strict official, you know, campus recruitment format necessarily in in London or most of the European schools." It's it's hard for some of them to digest that because they they're quite used to hearing this campus recruitment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the MBA programs and a drive to attract students can sometimes make promises or make it feel like, you know, people are just going to be hiring you right away. And then particularly when it comes to getting sponsorship of visas, I mean, now you're adding an additional barrier for employers. So I just think that it's it's important that people, you know, take an audit of what's really happening.
0: True. Absolutely. Uh, Which are the other universities you did consider besides EDHEC?
1: I looked at uh you know i have to i'd have to think you know honestly (laughs) there weren't that many um you know i i i really i you know honestly Avinash, i've never been the kind of guy that wants to go to uh to like harvard uh to be totally honest i've always wanted to go a place that was a good value for money where i could go and get some space to Mm. uh really explore my own learning path and I and so to me, Edhec was great. They accepted me really quickly, and so I basically just—I'm uh, pretty pretty sure they were maybe one of the only. Maybe I applied to um, the IE Business School. Hmm. I think I was pretty close to submitting to them, but you know, Edhec was—they accepted me quickly, and and then cool. and, uh, and then I was in. And uh, one tip that I would have for people who are, who go into these MBA interviews that I found out from Edhec is they really liked my ambition. <laughs> I thought that was interesting because I, I would imagine if you were interviewing somebody and they were like, oh, you know, I really want to change the world. Sometimes that could be off-putting, but I felt like, but EDHEC told me specifically that they liked that I was really ambitious. And so they gave me an acceptance very quickly.
0: Amazing. Amazing. That's that's really good to hear. So what what was the reality once you did get in? How did the reality match with your expectations of EDHEC? <laughs>
1: Well, I didn't know a lot about what to expect. Mm. Uh, and so I would say that it was, yeah, I was just kind of observing. I guess the the main, um, the thing that I noticed right away is that it's really different to be in a room with 60 or 80 other people who are also pretty smart and ambitious. And my schooling experience up until then it's not to say that my fellow students weren't smart and ambitious, but not quite to the level that they were in the MBA program.
0: Mm, right, right, right. Cool, cool. So, um, great. So, did, were you married back then when you did go into the MBA?
1: No, I was with a longtime girlfriend and she moved with me to France and she ended up doing a master's program in France as well. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool.
0: Great. So. What happened after the MBA? So you finished the MBA in 2012. What did you end up doing right after that? And at what point of time did Easel get going?
1: Yeah, so this is really where Easel kind of starts. Mm -hmm. You know, and and maybe your listeners will be interested in this um, because it's a little bit of a a kind of a sad story. Mm. I mean, after the MBA, after graduating and moving back to Northern California, I kind of found that the, I felt a little bit betrayed to be totally honest by the whole MBA system because employers were very uninterested in talking to me, even though I had done a long time internship, I had multiple recommendations. Um, you know, to be honest, they, they they just didn't. In fact, I think the MBA was a little bit of a problem for my, for my hiring profile Okay, because uh, to, to a large extent, MBA candidates appear to be more expensive to employers. And to move back to Northern California, having not been there for a couple of years, it, I was, it was very, very difficult to get a job. I was getting almost no interviews. Um, it was very difficult. And so then I got uh, somebody, you know, basically said you should upgrade your resume. And they gave me this, this copy that, of a resume that their partner had had written for them that had cost their partner, I think, $1,500 to hire a resume writer Hmm. to write this resume. So I kind of reverse engineered it, and I wrote my resume in that format. And then very quickly, uh, Robert Half, which is a a major HR consultancy, Hmm. called me and said, hey, come in for an interview. And I did. And they pretty quickly wanted to hire me. And so I went from really knowing nothing about the labor market to knowing an awful lot about it because I was a top-performing recruiter for you know six months or eight months or whatever at Rob Half. Hmm. And then that's when I decided uh, with my brother that Easel was a good idea because I felt like these universities, whether it's undergraduate, MBA, PhD, are dramatically under-preparing people for hmm. managing their own careers. So we created uh, Easel's first course, which was basically a resume writing course and then it developed into a career management course and it became now it's the best-selling career management course ever in the history of the world mm. and it helped us create a business around it
0: that is really interesting that's really fascinating to hear because for a long time I've held this view myself that MBA schools are my personal opinion is they're just not doing enough to prepare people for the real world um, I mean I mean yeah you get the network yeah you get some basic theoretical education but some of the relevant concepts are not really surfaced much so it's really interesting to hear that your motivation behind even creating easel
1: Absolutely I mean I I I struggle with it because I feel like sometimes the MBA programs are designed to raise your ceiling and in order to do that It's like to learn about marketing from a mega strategic level. I mean, we were doing, you know, marketing and strategy exercises concerning the corporate structure of General Electric. Mm. And like, that's very interesting. And, you know, there's a lot to be analyzed there. But from a pragmatic standpoint, almost nobody is going to be doing that marketing and strategy job. And so, and if they did, the way that they would qualify to do it would be to do some of the lower level stuff first. So to me, I, I feel like like where MBA, MBAs do need to do a lot more uh, pragmatic uh, project type of stuff, um, and the data bears that out, quite frankly, and I think in the career area is is definitely important. Um, yeah, and, and so, I mean, honestly, this could go into a different conversation <laughs> because at Easel, we kind of feel like flipping the classroom and providing a really kick-ass online learning experience – Uh, with somebody that was there to help facilitate and help you uh, texturalize your learning for your own situation would be a much better modality of education than to spend all of your MBA program's money uh, trying to fly professors in from all over the world that are going to be with you for a few days and then they're going to leave.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I can really relate to the kind of experience you might have gone through because my wife finished her MBA and she struggled for months to get a job. And she wanted a job in product management and no MBA teaches you product management that well. I learned product management the hard way. In fact, I used to go back to my university and teach MBA students about product management because that's so much missing. But I, I do agree with that. That's like a whole nother discussion altogether. And I could talk for yeah. hours.
1: <laughs> but that's why I think that the cost, uh, the, the cost factor should come in um, because, you know, it's, if, if, if your wife isn't – if your wife is going to have a hard time getting a job, it's like that's normal. It's normal to have a difficult time making career transitions, mm-hmm. for them to take a year, uh, for you to do projects and all these other things. Like it's not easy to make a career transition. But what makes it even harder is if you're doing that while you owe the government $100,000 in debt and True. student loan payments are coming due and they're 5000 6000 $10,000 a month.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, no, amazing. So one question which which I wanted to touch upon is why did you decide to even go back to the US? Was that a plan that you you already set or did you did you
1: consider working in
0: Europe first and then going back or yeah, what was your mindset then?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um so one thing that I realized from the MBA program is that in many ways The United States is the heartbeat of the global business community. When we were sitting in a classroom in France, we were constantly analyzing what Apple was doing, what GE was doing, how Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs works. And that's not to say that like especially London where you're based is a great financial center and there's a lot to be learned there about global finance and all that type of stuff. And, of course, there's incredible – you know, manufacturing businesses in Japan and South Korea. And, um, you know, in the Scandinavia, you have incredible software developers. And in Germany, you obviously have an incredible economy. But having lived in China and in Chile and in Mm -hmm. Europe, um, what I've found is that to launch a business, the U.S. is a great place to do it. So uh, for me, uh, you know, honestly, the south of France and Forgive me if anybody is Niswa here that's listening but the South of France is an awful place to do business <laughs> um, the regulations are terrible the talent pipeline is terrible the capital structure is just abysmal um, and so you know there and so so there was that problem and then I did consider you know launching my business in China and what I found there is that there were some really major uh, risks related to uh, ownership structure and needing mm-hmm. to have local partners and then you know just things related to you know China's China's approach to how they yeah. uh, charter businesses and things like that so you know honestly to go to the North Bay and uh, and figure it out it just it was a it was a nice stable place uh, to start. Uh, expensive to live there but it it was a great place to launch a business
0: yeah absolutely Davis I know we did say uh, about the time how much time do you have
1: (laughs) maybe 10 more minutes
0: Oh cool cool yeah that's a lot no problem (laughs) great Um, so that that's really good to hear about easel so what what how has easel progressed over these four years and you know what's what's next for the company
1: well um, There, there is a big announcement coming. I can't make that yet, but (laughs) um, one thing that I'll tell you, like how Easel has progressed. So, the thesis of Easel for you listening, if you've never seen an Easel course, is that MOOCs are great. You know, massive open online courses. I'm so excited that people can access information from everywhere. (laughs) But most MOOCs are people delivering slides from a lectern and maybe some very light uh, design elements. Mm. And if you just take a step back from MOOCs and realize that what's happening with MOOCs is that you're learning over video, you realize that the medium is video. And if you were to take an analogy, the way that when a MOOC is delivered, when a MOOC is delivered with just slides or somebody talking at a lectern, that's about the same use of the video medium as if you went to the pub, And you ordered a pint of beer and they gave you about a 20th of a glass of beer. You know, the video medium is so fabulous. If you've ever seen, you know, the recent Star Wars movie, you can imagine just like how much incredible things can be done with video. Mm. And, you know, our minds are very visual. I mean, you know, Duke has done a study recently that about 55% of people are visual learners. So, Easel has always tried to take that approach that our courses are going to try to be absolutely amazing in terms of the production quality, as much as we can ever do. So, that's the first part. You know, why is EASL doing that? The second part, Avinash, and to you listening, is that I believe that the higher education system, particularly, particularly in the United States, is, is about to be dramatically disrupted. The cost of college is just skyrocketing. The quality of education has not improved. And you're seeing this now being reflected in enrollment numbers. And so we're we're in this world where there's micro-credentials emerging. And at the same time, undergraduate degrees are very, very expensive. So basically, the future, I believe, for, for digital education and interactive education and video-based learning is super, super exciting. And I'm really, really passionate about this stuff because... I think we're entering into a world where we're gonna cons- we're gonna constantly need to learn if we want to figure out you know how programmatic Facebook ads work and all this stuff. You know, it's just who, who knows? We're all gonna be using IBM Watson to curate our emails <laughs> in ten years. I mean, who, who knows?
0: Yeah. Absolutely no, exactly. You know that's why when you were talking about marketing, I, I was relating to different concepts, right? Because the marketing that you study in some of the MBA classes and traditional courses is a lot of the four Ps and a lot of the traditional marketing. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did not even know about digital marketing. You know, when I do, was doing my MBA, and nobody ever said that marketing has so much data analysis involved. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. It, and and yeah. So it's it's really cool that that you guys are doing all this.
1: Yeah, we're really trying to blend mm. basically MBA topics, MBA thinking with using it with your hands. So, you know, it's like, you know, you start talking about something like, I don't know, maybe service design where you're design, you know, you're, you're mapping out a workflow. But then to be able to see that happen, you go build something and you install an amazing tool like Hotjar, which you can put on any web page and actually watch people interact with it. I mean that stuff is so amazing that it's enabling us to do so much more. And I basically believe that going forward, we're going to see capitalism transform a little bit where people are starting to use MBA-type concepts of social responsibility mm. and M&A and all these type of things for things beyond short-term profit because as we develop the tools to capitalize – long-term investments, for example, like we do a, you know, that having clean air around our factory is good in these different ways. Uh, I believe that we're going to start to see more corporations and individuals using these tools in ways that are holistic for the planet and I'm super excited about all that type of stuff and easel is going to be right there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, knowing what you know now and doing what you're doing now, would you have done an MBA?
1: <laughs> I would still do it. There's something about, you know, I was just um listening to an interview with a with an economist here in the United States mm-hmm. and from their data, and he's a he's an economist at George Mason University, which is a very conservative, borderline libertarian uh, university, albeit a very good university. And if your re- listeners don't know what libertarianism is, it's essentially the idea that you know free markets are better than government. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so this guy's a is an economist at this conservative university, and from his data analysis, eighty percent of the ROI on education, higher education comes from what he calls signaling, which is, you know, basically signaling that you've completed the program. And I believe that, you know, I don't have data to support this, but I believe that you can also break down signaling Avinash and to your listeners into what you signal to the external world and also what you signal to yourself. And so having an MBA is a strong signal to the external world you know, when people go on my Udemy profile or wherever else my courses are distributed or Easel's courses are distributed and they see that I've earned an MBA from a top program, I mean that helps, that's a strong signal. But there's also a really powerful internal signal and this is another reason why I would have done the MBA and I would still do it. There's an internal signal to say that I've spent a year thinking about M&A and strategy and like all these topics and and that, that, you know what, I am a leader, I, I do have that potential. And so I feel like for some people having that strong internal signal that they're ready to take a leadership role, there's a lot of return in that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. My wife and I keep having debates and discussions on MBA pro versus Benefit versus con because I'm I'm completely in digital marketing. In fact, I'm moving from product management to growth marketing myself, and I kind of uh, keep saying, uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have done the MBA. And she says no, but that's that signaling, you know, external signaling is what you're saying. And mm-hmm. in fact, we've had some guests on a show where a few of them have said that MBA feels like. They deserve a seat on the table that they did mm. not used to feel earlier. Now it's just the feeling and the internal signaling. So pretty cool.
1: <sighs> yeah, because you know, to go and to be with a bunch of people who are really smart and to say, you know what, I've been I've been with those people. I've been I've done I, I know what GE's finances look like. I know why this CEO got fired. All of a sudden, these people are not external external, you know, sort of unreachable experiences in life. Now you are in the, you are in the experience. And I feel like that, that really disintegrates a major psychological barrier to achievement
0: yeah yeah awesome awesome that's really good I'm really looking forward to the announcement uh, for easel I mean this this episode is now going to be released for a few more weeks so if the announcement is done before that maybe I'll just include that in the show notes
1: <laughs> alright that sounds great
0: cool cool so um, you know this, this is one question that I ask every guest is you know what is the one thing you wish I had asked you
1: one thing that okay the one thing that I wish you had asked me is what is investment crowdfunding Cool. Yeah. Go for (laughs) it. Oh, okay. So investment crowdfunding is what I was working on. In your intro of me, you mentioned that I was the content marketeer for the CCA group, which means crowdfund capital advisors. And in the United States in 2012, we passed a major securities law update, which enables people to use Kickstarter-like websites to sell shares in their companies. So basically, what you're doing is a micro IPO. And for your listeners and for you, Avinash, who now are, I'm sure, somewhat familiar with ICOs or initial coin offerings. Oh, my God. It's
0: yeah. <laughs> basically
1: like a crowd sale, you know? And so uh, the, it's, it, this investment crowdfunding is essentially a crowd sale or an ICO, but done within the United States, and you're selling securities rather than tokens. And so I'm particularly interested in the investment crowdfunding because I think that it's something that's a little bit more approachable for small businesses and for medium-sized businesses. But in general, this idea of distributed ownership, I believe, is the big bang for the transformation of capitalism itself. Because I believe that capitalism is moving towards a more decentralized structure, and that as that happens, the ways that stakeholders engage, particularly investors, engage with their businesses is going to radically transform. Because when you have many micro investors who are not interest, they don't have a money interest in the success of a project to the tune of like a million dollars or two million dollars, but rather it's 500 or a thousand or $2,000, they're going to be interested in things beyond money. And I believe that what we're going to start seeing is that some of the ideas that even Karl Marx brought up related to alienation of oneself from one's output are going to start to disintegrate as people own parts of their own labor in these more decentralized ways, whether it's through making investments or earning shares or earning tokens for participation in certain projects. And I am thrilled about all this stuff, and I'm really keeping up on the smart contracts world with the Ethereum Ah, uh, network and things like mm. that, because I think that this collaborative capitalism thing has the potential to transform government and transform communities and transform companies.
0: Right. That, that's that's really interesting. So, um, so this whole concept of the investment crowdfunding. Are you interested in it just out of curiosity to explore more, or are you connecting and relating it to Easel in some form in the future as well?
1: I can't say too much right now, but pay attention <laughs> to the announcement.
0: Nice. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Good to hear that. <laughs> because that, that does sound really, really interesting. Are there some really popular companies that are making it even more popular in the U.S. at the moment?
1: Um, right now, it's been restricted. You know, the most popular uh, investment opportunities mm. through investment crowdfunding have been mostly breweries because people mm. kind of like to own uh, shares in a brewery or a restaurant in their neighborhood. Um, so, so that's, what's really popular now, but I think what's happening in the digital space eh, that I'm paying attention to is really this like sort of self sovereign movement. And like, there's this, this thing called democracy.earth. And I would highly recommend checking that out where people are starting to, um, basically learn how to collaborate. So in that space, there's some major, major interesting stuff. Uh, my co-instructor in the growth hacking course, Maya Voj, who's from Slovenia, she was just the head marketeer on the Origin Trail uh, ICO, which raised $22 million. And they're building a blockchain based um, supply chain solution. And in that, I actually, you know, from covering their, their ICO, I got trace tokens. And so now I actually earned Ethereum based tokens mm-hmm. for in their project. And so that stuff is definitely exploding. And there's already starting to be some uh, white label. Collaboration software on the blockchain—that's that's happening where people, you know, you earn from your labor. It's kind of like the next evolution of the DAO or the decentralized autonomous organization. So I know that's a lot of information, but I see right now in the digital world it's definitely exploding, and also in the in the I've seen a couple projects in the uh, medical technology space that are exploding where um, a lot of times a big funder like uh, like. Abv or something mm. will agree to match crowd investments and that has enabled some really big raises.
0: That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm checking out Democracy.Earth. It's pretty interesting. I've never heard of this. I, I think I'm just going to go through it in much more detail. That's
1: Yeah, that's I mean, you awesome. know, honestly, just like to, to finish the podcast and forgive me if I'm being a nerd listener <laughs> and, you know, uh, but, you know, the, there's like, this guy, one of the people who's leading the Democracy.Earth uh, conversation is this guy, Santiago Siri mm. from Argentina. And he did a great episode uh, called t- on, on a podcast called Tales from the Crypt. And if you go to about the one hour mark, you can listen to um, basically him and the host talking about why cryptocurrencies and the rise of decentralized organizations is a deeply spiritual evolution for humanity. And that's definitely where I am on this stuff. I think that we're going to find that community and human relationships start to transform when people start to collaborate in economic ways because right now we're only seeing collaborations in governments usually and then in, in, in corporations but when we start to see autonomous collaborations so like you're an autonomous individual I'm an autonomous individual and we've agreed to collaborate I just think that the possibilities for humanity are really really cool
0: awesome awesome yeah yeah I can I can I can see Santiago Siri I'm following him on Twitter I didn't even realize it pretty cool <laughs> awesome I, I, I almost feel like saying you know that once you have launched uh, whatever you're going to launch uh, maybe you should come back on the show and then we can talk about a lot more detail
1: <laughs> all right well think about that that sounds good yeah
0: great uh, I don't want to take up more time than I have David so I, I, I think it's a good time to close off that so you know as a final, final thing is there any last piece of advice you really want to leave off with
1: yeah you know follow your bliss man you know you got your when your heart and your brain are lined up together you never know what's going to happen you might have to have some short-term costs to do that and that's not to say go be an entrepreneur or whatever but make sure that your heart is is the power because like your brain is just the follower of your heart
0: awesome awesome no great 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 thought to leave it so you know what what is the best way that you prefer that people know more about you and and in case they want to get in touch with you
1: I mean, your listeners are super smart. Having heard this podcast, they can probably find everything that I've ever done in five seconds.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Davis, this has been awesome. Thanks a lot for your time. I know it's the middle of the day. I know you're taking this call in the car, so I really appreciate the effort gone into this. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care.
1: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The MBA Jam. Now it's time for you to take action. Head over to TheMBAJam.com to listen to more episodes and discover great resources.